good morning. And uh, we are honored to have with us this morning uh, my good friend, Rabbi David Greenspoon. Uh, now, you know, if you, if you listen to politicians talk, which you should probably do as little as possible, uh, you notice that they have these ways of referring to each other, in part because when they speak, like on the Senate floor, you actually don't get to talk to the person with whom you're debating. You're addressing the president. So you'd say, Mr. President, I thank my good friend for his comments. And usually when the, when the politician says, my friend, it means that I'm his sworn enemy. And if he says, my good friend, it means some people on our staffs are on speaking terms. Um, but, uh, but David actually is a, a very good friend, uh, and I'm, I'm glad uh, we've been hoping to, to bring him here for a while. I'm glad it worked out to do that this morning. Uh, David and I will often get together and talk uh, Bible and theology and beer. Um, uh, over beer, actually. So um, uh, this morning I want to give to you as a token of our thanks uh, <laughs> a, a bottle of St. Festivus. For the rest of us. I, I, yeah, St. Festivus is, uh, is a, a, the patron saint of, of uh, evangelicals on January 5th. I just made that up. <laughs> anyway, in, enjoy in good health. Uh, but uh, David is uh, David uh, currently teaches at the Charles E. Smith School in Rockville. Uh, I got to know him when he was uh, a rabbi on the staff at Bethel, and then uh, later on at Adat Chaim in Reisterstown. But uh, you're Charles E. Smith, and, and tell me, David, what's a nice Jewish boy like you doing in a place like that? Well, the rest of the name of the school is the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School. Uh, well, that would clue some of us. Yes. Would, yep. And uh, Mr. Smith, some 40-something years ago, um, helped realize a vision of a small, growing day school and put a lot of resources. For those of you who might have Washingtonian-type connections, you'll recognize that Mr. Smith was a huge real estate developer, and his name is on buildings all through Montgomery County and other places. And at, well before the uh, debacle of 08, the school at its peak had about 1,500 students K-12 and was, according to some, the largest independent school in the D.C. area. Um, now we're down to um, probably about yeah, 11, 1,200, and I'm blessed to teach in the upper school, which means um, middle school and high school. This year I teach every grade but eighth, so 7, 9, 10, 11, 12. And frankly, <laughs> no board meetings, no committee <laughs> meetings. It's lovely. Right. Well, uh, and, and you had a, a somewhat checkered past before that, right? You were in the Navy? Twice. You think I'd have learned the first time that Navy is an acronym for never again volunteer yourself? <laughs> and after four years as a shipboard electrician, I knew two things when I got out of the Navy. One, I was never going back in. And two, if I did go back in, it would be as a chaplain. And I spent seven years in the reserves as a chaplain um, during and past seminary. Good. Well, I'm thrilled you could be with us now. What, uh, what, what I, I warned you we wanted to talk about some was uh, this naughty passage of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, which is uh, uh, what we're chewing on, actually, all, all this fall, winter, and spring. So I have to ask, before we yeah. even start that, can I just That's make a... K-N-O-T-T-Y. Just, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I just would like to make two quick comments sure. in, in response to the wonderful welcome. First of all, what an amazing praise team, right? The music. I was saying to Jason, it is... I was saying to Jason, it sounded like the Lumineers up there, and you should call yourself the Illumineers, right? Well, so praise for the praise team, right? Um, And the second thing, just what a wonderful experience is to come to this glorious day that God has made, icy and cold and rainy that it might be, 
and, and coming in and seeing such an array of different faces with different backgrounds from different parts of our larger human family, young, old, black, white, Asian, Caucasian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and coming together in, in common cause, giving real witness to the fact that you know, God's spirit moves on the earth in so many different ways. So I want to thank you for the privilege and the uh, opportunity to spend some time with you this morning. Now, you had said that before, before this uh, challenge, you hadn't spent a whole lot of time in, in Romans, and, and uh, you were struck by Paul as, uh, as a, uh, well, t- tell me how you, how you put it. So my first reaction to reading Paul in Romans, I've, I've looked at Acts, I've looked at a couple, I've looked at Philippians, I've looked at a couple of other things in the past, but um, really in Romans, you get the sense of Paul as an expositor of text, Right. Paul as a preacher, if you will. And uh, as I looked through um, nine, Romans 9 to 11, I was really stuck by, struck by his fairly elegant um, approach to text and his application of text and giving his message. But then, Jason, to be perfectly honest, I went back to four like you suggested and said, oh. Um, so like any good preacher, I think that there might be times when Paul is um, being exceptionally selective in how he's uh, reading a text and applying the text, at least from four. Yeah. Um, but in, in 9 through 11 especially, um, I, I just thought just how phenomenal that uh, delivery of the message was. And again, presuming that the, he's speaking to the church in Rome who are not necessarily um, biblically savvy as Jews in Israel in the first century or even the Jewish community in Rome in the first century. So that... He's able to go to text and, um, and sort of let those texts not only be a support to his larger message, but also maybe on another way, sort of an opening of the doorway, inviting um, that not Jewish, not biblical community into a conversation with the Bible itself um, through his compelling application of these verses. I thought was fairly masterful. It was really a. It was it was fun to read. Well, thank good. Let's do the let's do the critique first. What uh, Romans yeah, four? So Romans tell, four. Give, give us your uh, your brief against Paul in uh, in Romans four. His his uh, monkeying with the Abraham story. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to use that term. <laughs> but so I'm really looking at. Um, so I'm I'm guess I'm looking starting at nine. Um, going through 15, and as I'm reading this and looking at it, and, I, and he seems to be making the statement that even before Abraham's circumcision and named from Avram to Abraham, even before that, um, there, was, there was a promise that leads to a descendancy in faith as opposed to a physical, genetic, familial lineage. And that's a lovely, lovely claim until you remember that um, Genesis 21.12 makes extremely specific that through Isaac will be called your seed. So there's really the idea in Hebrew scriptures from a Hebrew, from a Jewish reading, that there's a very specific winnowing of covenant. And that in as much as Abraham had multiple sons. One was given a blessing, but one was given blessing, including covenant. And then even at Isaac, there are multiple sons, 
One is given blessing. One is giving blessing in covenant. And there's this, to my mind, this winnowing through that Paul just sort of sidesteps as he goes mm-hmm. to make the claim about the, the promise before, before circumcision mm-hmm. and descendancy in faith. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I found that, a, a, well, a little bit of um, homiletic leisure domain, shall yeah. we say. Well, I've always, the, the thing that, that's always struck me about what Paul does in Romans 4, uh, and the part that I've often had questions about is in verse 19 when he says, without weakening in his faith, Abram uh, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. As I read the Abraham story, it mm-hmm. seems like without weakening in his faith is fairly generous to the the patriarch. And I know there's a great deal of uh, tradition among the uh, among the rabbis of of uh, thinking about what it was like to be Abraham and what what his faith was like. What how, how would uh, how would you read that? So the the idea as good as dead is, is already problematic for me. Uh-huh. Um, to, to to my mind. You know, Sarah makes a very similar claim in, when the messengers come to announce the good tidings that a year from now, in other words, three months before she can get pregnant from now, right, plus um, there's going to be a child. Um, and Sarah laughs, and that's where we get the name Isaac. Yitzchak, he shall, they will laugh, meaning the idea of this old woman having a baby and this old man being able to sire that child. So I, I, I sense that there's um, in, in Jewish biblical tradition an appreciation that this was going to be a miracle baby. Go figure, miracle babies, right? Um, but at the same time... Everything we have that's any good, we ripped off from Judaism. Uh, it's good to only steal from the best, right? So, um, at, the, at the same time, I, I look at this particular passage... Um, and I, I have to wonder what's going on. Is it that, you know, Sarah laughed or Sarai laughed, but Abram didn't laugh? And that's, and that's what Paul was referring to? Is there something else going on here? Um, I'm, I'm not so sure what that really, you know, really is meant to mean. Um, but the idea of, um, for he was about, for he, which is good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, um, Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not so certain, you know, what, what that's about. In, in the, RN, the NRSV, there's a parenthetical that he, for he was almost as, for he was about 100, what was the parenthetical? Um, for he was about 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 90 when Yitzchak, when the good tidings for Isaac came. He was 99, according to the biblical text, when he circumcised himself. So if, if I was going to look at anything mm-hmm. to, to be sort of a, a surprising statement is the vitality of a 99-year-old man taking a flint to all the men in his household after taking it to himself. Yeah. So um, um, I, I don't know what's motivating Paul underneath all of this or mm-hmm. the, the, the transmission of the text from Paul, but um, I, I, I looked at that um, not with the same sense of difficulty as you did. Sure. Well, for me, the, the difficulty comes from the stories of Abraham trying to pass Sarah off as his sister. Now, it doesn't seem like he wasn't weakening in his faith when he did that kind of thing, does it? No. Um, all right, so I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing that it needs to be at least a, a PG-13 uh, comment, so I'm going to sort of lighten it up. And um, you'll recall that 
and the second incident of take my sister please right. <laughs> um, he's called the task by Melchizedek Melech Gerar Melchizedek the king of Gerar in the land of the Philistines says what do you mean telling me that she's your sister mm-hmm. and Abraham, Abraham goes to this place where well she is she's the sister <laughs> by you know, ha, you know she's my yeah. half sister and right. not my full sister yeah. and um, you know for those who like geeking out on biblical essays, et cetera, Spicer's got this wonderful essay early in the Anchor Bible, mm-hmm. uh, earlier Anchor Bible stuff with um, the sister wife. But I, I see that, and um, having just having teaching a class right now on Second Samuel, um, it to my mind it's a foundational piece because that same type of thing will come back up after the sordid incident of um, Amnon and Tamar where Tamar says, look, if you really want me that badly, you don't need to be violent. Mm-hmm. I hope everybody caught that. Be violent about that. We can take it to dad, and you know, dad can take care of it. So it seems to me that in the ancient world, there was some sort of social moray that down to at least some marginal acceptance for the idea of marrying a half-sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm not so bothered by the half-sister bit, as much as I'm bothered by the um, let me hide behind your skirt, so to speak. Right, right. Well, let me ask you the same question I asked A.J. Levine when she was here a oh, couple great. months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, so moving ahead now to Romans 9 to 11, uh, how do you read what uh, Paul says in, in verse 6? Uh, I'll let you pull that up. Uh, chapter and, 9? Yes, chapter 9, verse 6. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm specifically interested in hearing, uh, well, two things. One, um, how, d- how does this relate to what else you might find in, in that uh, Second Temple era um, and, and uh, Jewish thought? But, mm. but two, um, does this piss you off? So the question is, it is not as though, the, the verse is, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from or out of Israel are Israel. Yeah, so how did AJ answer that? <laughs> she, uh, she said that, uh, that uh, Paul was, uh, was well within uh, 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 normative streams of first century Judaism in saying that uh, there are some who are real Israel and some who aren't. Yeah, what she said. Um, <laughs> so I think that there's, there's something to keep in mind. Uh, that the varieties of Judaisms in the first century of the common era in um, the land of Israel under Roman occupation um, was immense, right? We know of at least four or five major streams, and it's an open debate to scholars as to how wide any one stream was at any given time. And I guess that might also depend on the perspective of where you're standing looking at that stream to see how wide it is. Um, and if you think going back even before that to the end of the Maccabean uh, revolt, the Hasmonean period, mid-first century, mid-second century BCE, the 130s, the 120s, the 110s type of thing, when you have um, a, a group of priestly-based, a, a, a priestly-based society, leaving the temple in Jerusalem and writing up the Damascus document saying, you know, 
the temple is corrupt, and if only you do these things, will we be able to come home? Sounds a little familiar, right? Um, you, you get a sense of that the intra-Jewish conversation was at times sharp, right? Um, and it was really a matter of how do we understand God's word, how do we understand God's will, and how does that play out on day-to-day living writ large? Um, so that's just you know, the Qumran community, and then there were other communities um, outside of that, and you know, archaeologists are finding that there were such things as Jewish mystery religions called mystery only because we have no idea what they did, but they were <laughs> Jews doing it. Right. Um, but there were Jewish worshipers of a Mithraism um, that we've discovered in the land of Israel. There, there's all of that that goes on. It's so, like the early version of the Jubus. The Jubus? Yeah, something like that. Um, you know, just, just thinking about... Um, and, and this is going to be you know, seminal for, for all of Pauline's stuff. I'm just looking at the approaches to circumcision, right? Um, there, there are some scholars that suggest that the, the Jewish standard practice of circumcision, as far as consisting of three discrete parts um, in that process of, of, the, of the circumcision rite, R-I-T-E, um, really comes out of this first century part where there was a wide variety of practices where some people, according to some scholarship, just barely nicked um, the foreskin and said, it's cut, right? So from that to full removal of the, the um, foreskin, et cetera, et cetera, there's a wide range of practices. There's a wide range of practices um, going back to the Book of Jubilees, written by a Jewish author again right after the Maccabean period probably, and, you know, whereas what will become rabbinic Judaism later has this idea that daytime begins the evening the night before, and we follow a lunar calendar, the Book of Jubilee says, you know, the calendar is 365 days long, thank you very much, right? It's a solar calendar. Um, so when you've got one group saying lunar calendar and another group saying solar calendar, groups saying lunar and groups saying solar, how do you get to common unity to community when it comes time to do such vitally important things as bring the Paschal offering? You know, in this day and age, for most, for most non-Orthodox Jews, their, their, their sense of holy season of obligation, so to speak, is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and they got to check into shul, to synagogue, at least for the sermon, or I've got to be there for about an hour sort of get my ticket punched for membership in the Jewish people for the following year. Um, in the ancient world, it was Passover. And bringing that Paschal sacrifice was what said, I'm in the community or I'm out of the community. And if we're not bringing the Paschal sacrifice, if you're not bringing the Paschal sacrifice at the right time, according to my understanding of what the right time is, you're outside the community. So that's just one. And then you look at things like tithing. There were lots of variations on tithing. With whom could you break bread? Right? We think kosher about slaughter of animals or whatnot today. The most foundational, fundamental layer of kashrut, if you think about it from a biblical perspective, wasn't the list of foods you can or cannot eat. But once you harvest that agricultural and, and, and the produce of your flocks, have you tithed? And if I can't trust your tithing, then I can't sit at your table. So there was a lot of variation and, and even some, some, some sharp exchange, um, if not vociferous disagreement, on the intra-Jewish conversation. Now add to that variations of Jewish Christianities. Then add to that 
non-Jewish Christianity, some of which were Judaizing, um, you know, even what, I'm, was it Ni- the Council of Nicaea that really, um, in, the, in like 325 or something like that, that really comes down hard against Christians who are going to certain types of um, you know, communities and Judaizing there. So there's this, um, the, my sense is that boundaries in first century Eretz Israel within the Jewish community were, were not hard boundaries in general, internal to one group or another, they might have seen them as, this is my, this is my absolute. But there was seemingly a whole lot of variation and variegation and fluidity. And um, so with, within all of this change, um, finding a constant is a challenge. And once you find that constant, you, you hold on to it for dear life because it's one of the few things that can truly, really define you. So my, my sense is, is that... Um, when Paul says that there are Israel who aren't Israel, he very likely might be m- mimicking to a certain degree an intra-Jewish critique. Um, yeah, they think that they're good Jews, but you know what? Those Sadducees, they don't believe in life after death. Or That's those why Pharisees. So Sadducee. Hmm? You, you know uh, that song? No. Oh, okay, sorry. Right. So, um, so from, the, from the Hebrew, it comes from Tzadok, yeah. right? Which was a, a priestly line, which means righteous. Right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, the... For, for me, the, um, the idea that there was a normative, quote-unquote, orthodox Judaism of the first century of the common era um, is simply impossible. Mm-hmm. Simply impossible. And whenever you have internal competition, um, you have a lot of vociferous debate. Right? Truly, take a, take a classical Episcopalian and a classical Presbyterian and you put Why? me inside their, oh, their worship sorry. services, yeah. and there's very little difference between them, right? Internal to themselves, oh, well, they use the wrong word in that prayer, and all, right? Um, all right. From, from my perspective, it doesn't look so different. Um, it might very well be the same type of thing, having been in the first century, where we can sit back and, and, and say there was a lot of variation but in, and they weren't necessarily so different, but the points on what, where there were differences were extremely important to the people who maintained them. And so that doesn't piss you off? The, there are people, look, so I once heard from a Catholic priest buddy of mine. He wished that um, all Christians were Catholic and that all Catholics were Christian, right? So um, I, I think that there's always room for critique internal to people who talk a talk but don't walk that walk. Um, and I think that for, for Paul to be saying that um, would only piss me off depending on where you want to locate Paul. Right? Um, we talked about this a little bit. And you know, the, I'm, I, I started looking at Paul confused and I leave looking at Paul opaque. Right? Um, it, it's, it, it's really hard to identify exactly where he might be. But I'm thinking that more and more, um, as he might have, according to you, seen himself fully within the Jewish community, uh, I'm thinking that the Jewish community that we would most closely recognize today, um, you know, the, the community of interpretation as opposed to sacrifice, if you will, um, looked at Paul rather askance. Um, for, for Paul to say in-house, there are Jews who aren't really doing Jewish, doesn't bother me. Um, to, to look at Paul as outside the boundaries of Judaism 
and saying they think that, you know, they're Israel, but they're really not? Well, you know, Paul can worship God however Paul wants to, and I'll worship God in God's way, right? You know, it's just that, you know, he has every right to be wrong. I want to uh, allow time for, for folks here to ask questions, but I will uh, uh, throw one more verse out at you that I threw out at, at uh, AJ, um, which is uh, 10.4. Uh, and you're actually helping me. I've got to preach on this verse next week, uh-huh. so maybe you can uh, set Close me your up. ears. Um, so in 10.4, because uh-huh. obviously Paul's understanding yeah, of yeah. what it is to be Jewish means that you uh-huh. recognize that uh, he, he believes Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, Messiah. So he says in 10.4, that Messiah is the end or the goal or the culmination or the climax of Torah so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, is that a place where he, uh, he puts himself off the reservation or is there uh, a stream of thought that could see Messiah, it, again, leaving aside the question of whether Jesus was or is, uh, is there a stream of Jewish thought that could see Messiah as somehow the culmination or, or the the fulfillment of Torah. The Jewish idea of messiahship is complex. Um, and even today, at every Brit Milah ceremony where a child is circumcised and brought into covenant, there is a special chair called the chair of Elijah. And the child is handed to, traditionally, the paternal grandfather who holds him in that chair, sits him in that chair. And the, the custom exists because Jewish tradition believes that each and every generation has its candidate to be the Messiah. And since Elijah the prophet is the harbinger of the Messiah's arrival, it's good for Elijah to get a heads up as to who it's going to be. So, you know, get a little early introduction. Um, so the, the idea that in first century, and think especially a first century Jewish community that was facing serious oppression under Rome, um, uh, a first century Jewish community that had seen Jerusalem leveled, um, you know, uh, and even before that, a first century Judaism where Jesus was not the first rabbi, walking around preaching something to the effect of this world is coming, this epoch is coming to its close, um, and the, the Messianic era is around the corner, I think it's, it's highly likely that there was um, the sense of Messianic expectation, um, anticipation, um, and of course, in a Jewish context, um, the, the arrival of the Messiah really is the fulfillment of the divine plan. Um, so some of this is also going to factor into when and what and where you have Bible as a set canon within the Jewish community and which canon, Alexandrian, yada, yada, right? So all that stuff is going on underneath it. So I, I think that um, for the first century Jewish soul to hear that um, you know, the, the Messiah is the fulfillment of the divine plan, and the culmination of everything that has been is de rigueur, right? Um, the, the point of exceptionality would be, and this is the guy, right? So I, I think that they, um, the, the question as to how it was heard in, in first century Jewish ears wasn't necessarily um, so strange. 
um, but identifying this person as being the de facto um, embodiment of that fulfillment um, would have pushed uh, would have pushed, pushed a few boundaries to say the least, and likely inspired a little bit of pushback. Look, Jesus's um, sermon on the mount uh, is a Jewish sermon to a Jewish audience. Um, when Jesus says, "My my." my father's house has many rooms or however exactly the language goes depending on what text you're looking at he's using imagery from Jewish mysticism that's called Hechalot or palace mysticism that talks about the big divine mansion with many different rooms right so the that Jesus used first century Jewish theology and Jewish language in, in a very current and contemporary manner to get the message across to his his listening audience um, has to be appreciated. And I can't imagine that not so many years after Jesus' death, um, Paul would have variated too much um, out of that. But at the same time, you know, there, there are certainly some points where you know, there is something new in the world as far as Paul is concerned. Well, let me uh, uh, not monopolize all of the conversation here. Do you all have uh, some questions that you wanted to uh, ask uh, Rabbi David? Yes, Julie? Um, I don't know, does it? Does it? Give it a shot. He's kind of short. Sure, absolutely. So that's, that's a fair question, right? Yeah. Um, and that question has come up in significant Baltimore conversations with some um, recent proselytizing by um, um, missionaries directing their efforts to the Jewish community in the last couple of years especially. So there's a lot of different parts to that question, Julie. Um, the, to my appreciation... Judaism is rather different from Christianity in that, one, it is predominantly familial, if you think about it on a certain level, right? Um, whereas Christianity really isn't familial, right? 
Um, it's the human family, but not a specific line of that human family, right? And just like you can adopt a child into your family from a different bloodline and bring that child into your family, so too theologically, um, people come to Judaism because other theologies don't fit. Um, and I've never heard, I mean, I, I, I can't begin to count how many times I've helped bring people into the Jewish community, either as their primary sponsoring rabbi or as a member of the rabbinic community that confirms that new status. I can't count, right? Never, ever, ever have I heard anybody say, well, you know, I'm, I'm joining the Jewish people because I like locks and bagels on a Sunday morning, right? It's not a cultural connection for them. I don't hear somebody saying, I'm joining the Jewish people because I'm, I'm Zionist, and I therefore have to be Jewish in order to be supportive of the state of Israel. Um, they may or may not, right? Um, for people coming into Judaism, Judaism is, I would say, 99.9% purely a theological experience for them. And some of the cultural and some of the familial um, can be challenging for them, right? The ironic piece is that you can be an atheist and be a good Joe right? because it's family. Right? So it depends on how you want to define Judaism. Right? Is it, right, depending on how you want to define covenant, right? Is it purely theological? Is it purely familial? Is it communal and cultural? Judaism really looks at three major ways of connecting Jewishly. Um, the, the joking term is the three Bs, right? Belief, belonging, and behavior. Um, what do you believe about God? Um, what do you, how do you belong to peoplehood? And what's your behavior as far as understanding living the Torah's um, requirements in daily life? So God, Torah, and Israel present three different vantage points or entry points into Jewish engagement, connection, commitments, or whatever else. In Christianity, there isn't something similar, right? Israel. So really it's the idea of um, you know, belief. What is my belief in God? What's my behavior according to Torah? Uh, what is my sense of belonging on the communal level to the larger family of Israel? So... And as much as you can be an absolute atheist and still be counted within the Jewish community, um, doesn't really bother people. But once you get to the, the, the red line, if you will, of um, well, Jesus, right? You're pushing buttons. You're really, really pushing buttons. Um, and it happens with Jesus in a way that it doesn't happen with other traditions, Bujus, um, you know, Hindus, um, et cetera, et cetera. They're all there. They're, they're all there. And, you know, they belong to synagogues, and they, they do all this other stuff. And uh, so she's into her Buddhism stuff, no big deal, right? Because it's more of a philosophy as opposed to a theological approach to the world. I don't know if it's, the, if it's exclusively a theological thing, right? I think that certainly um, 
at, at a certain point, there's a historical awareness that also comes in. I will, you know what? I got to revise my remarks. I cannot imagine somebody claiming an active religious identity as both Muslim and Jew. So maybe that's another example of, of where there are red lines that simply can't be crossed. Well, you can't say strictly this or that at that point, right? Okay, so then let me reframe. Let me restate, right? If all three are equally valid approaches or entry points into Jewish identity, you don't need to have the trifecta, right? Does, it, does that sort of refine it? All right, so... You're right. We can fix that. Now that sounds kind of threatening because I know how that happens. So internal to Judaism, um, you don't necessarily have that, that same appreciation. Um, internal, so I, I do this exercise regularly um, with certain types of students, adults as well as you know, teenagers, and I ask them to identify the 10 most important Jewish figures in history from 1850 on, right? And you'll get names like Theodore Herzl, Right, the, the father of modern political Zionism. You might get names like Jonas Salk. You might get names like Freud. You might get names like Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel. All these identifiably, recognizably, embraceably Jewish personages. Then my next question is, and can you identify the synagogue which they belonged to and attended regularly? Right? And they didn't. They didn't. Right? So I think because of the family piece there's a lot more tolerance for the range of theologies outside of a certain type of orthodoxy. Look, the idea, your, your comment about history and the tensions that might have arisen or that arose because of history are quite real. Um, an orthodox rabbi would not be inside this church or any church. And I've been up at West Point taking the tour and seeing guys with kippot not going into the chapel because Jewish Jewish law developed at a certain point in response to the idea of the Jewish communities being rounded up and forced into churches around Easter time for conversionary sermons, say, as much as we're forced to go in there from time to time, you don't do it voluntarily, right? 
So there, there are you know, Jews who have a vital appreciation of their Jewish identity that says, I can't step foot in there, I, and I won't, right? So, you know, they would look at me somewhat askance. My, my approach to revelation is very different than an Orthodox rabbi's approach to revelation. My, my appreciation of the evolving development of Jewish law and practice is very different than an Orthodox rabbi's appreciation um, or an Orthodox Jew's appreciation. So, you know, there's a wide range of approaches, and my, my friends up the street and to the, to the, you know, make up the street and make a left turn to the theological right um, would look at me and say, um, he might be Jewish, but he's not doing Judaism, right? So, you know, there, there's a wide, wide range in that. Um, I, 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 I hear the critique, and I think that um, the, the real response um, is that Judaism is not dogmatic, well, outside of an, a particular orthodox approach, Judaism is not dogmatic about the connection points. Because we're family, right? So I don't know um, if you might have heard this story or not, um, but it gets back to the, the Jews who are familiarly and culturally Jewish who have theologically accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Right? And what happens when you cross that boundary? And um, for many, many years, there was a large circling of the wagons. And um, what started to happen is as the Jewish community has seen more, Jew- more people coming into Judaism and is at the same time seeing people leaving Judaism for theological alternatives in the theological wide-open marketplace of modernity, um, the, the theology might put them outside the bar of Judaism, but family is family, right? And then what do you do when you're sitting around the table at the Federation, right, which is like our super, like our united way, if you are, right? Um, what do you do when you're sitting around a Federation table and you have a staunchly committed philanthropic leader of the community whose son has converted to Episcopalianism, but who still feels his Jewish commitments and identities and cultural backgrounds, especially vis-a-vis supporting the state of Israel, and that son wants to sit on the Jewish Community Relations Council, right? And, you know, he's not Jewish, but NIH would say that he is if they needed to do genetic tests, right? What do you do with that? And I think that's one of the, the challenges that the Jewish community is trying to come to terms with how to struggle with right now, they don't, you won't hear that from other folks but me, so don't blame any, don't hold anybody else accountable for my heresies, all right? Um, That's what I say all the time. Ah, I'm in good company. So the, so the idea um, that we're wrestling with that is, to my mind, um, the, the next um, big conversation in the Jewish community, what do you do with people who still maintain Jewish identities and connections, who theologically are no longer Jewish, but, right? And, while, and how do you accommodate this, if you're interested in accommodating it, when on the other hand, you have these folks who are out there actively proselytizing, saying it's the fulfillment of your Jewish identity to accept Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? So there, there's, there is that, that tension that goes on. One of my dearest friends growing up lived down the street from me, um, belonged to the same synagogue I belonged to, went through the same day school I went through, went through the same denominational camps um, that I 
couldn't afford to go to. Um, grew up in a kosher home. I didn't. Uh, went to this camp. You know, a staff came back keeping kosher, not just kosher, but vegetarian as the ideal of kashrut. And this is the 70s, right? So a little crunchy granola countercultural type of thing going on. Um, so my buddy Neil had even more impressive observance bona fides than I did. Um, met a woman. She promised to convert to Judaism. They got married. He came home from work one day and said, and, and his wife said, I'm not converting, I'm pregnant, and I'm leaving you. Yep, it was, it was the hat trick, right? Um, it pulled the rug out underneath Neil's world. Um, sometime later, Neil meets another young woman. Um, they start dating. Family is from the Cayman Islands, Baptist family, and in deference to her family's wishes, from time to time started attending church. Look, we're serious. It's, I'm just being respectful. And the more and more he went to church, um, for whatever reason, he got turned off to Jewish identity, the, rabbin, the Jewish community, maybe certain rabbis, and knowing the rabbis in my hometown at the time, I can understand uh, where it might have happened. Um, he got turned off to Judaism as a religious identity and felt himself really touched by the words he was hearing at the First Baptist Church and called to Christianity and you know, became Christian. And when I came home from a deployment, and um, he and I sat down, with serious, serious fear um, for our friendship, he shared with me that he had converted and accepted, accepted Jesus. And I think he was expecting that, you know, I would give him the, a standard Jewish or a standard rabbinic type of response. And I said to him, you know, Neil, to my mind, the idea of being a believer in God is living a certain type of righteous life. And if that's the goal of religious life, let's put that at the mountaintop, right? There's lots of reasons that there's more than one path up the mountain. And, you know, some people, you know, want to, to, to hike it the hard way, and some people want the cable car, and some people, you know, whatever it is getting up there, there are a lot of different ways up the mountain. The view from the top is not so different, right, depending on, you know, where on the top you're standing. And I said to him, you know, if you're living a more godly, righteous life as a Christian than you felt that you could as a Jew, who am I to argue, right? Um, and this was a guy who, you know, was at that point teaching in the Sunday school, whose comment was he never felt more connected to his Jewish, uh, Jewish heritage than as a Christian, right? Not my cup of tea. But I, I'm not going to argue that for Neil, it didn't work. Neil, to this day, last I heard at least, every year or so checks into a synagogue to hear a particular rabbi on the High Holy Days because he's just interested to hear if that message is there for him. Right? So um, I, I, I see the entire issue about identity is extremely complex. Extremely complex. And identity and status will oftentimes butt heads in some really uncomfortable, um, tension-creating ways. Tension-creating ways. So I, 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 I understand the question, how come the theological you know, red line is so different than all the other possible red lines? And my response to that is, you know, likely because at the end of the day, family is family, right? Um, and people is people, 
and you can really divorce yourself from both, right? And making certain values claims is the way to do that. Well, thank you, uh, David, for answering all these questions in such a clear and concise manner with absolutely no ambiguity uh, or, or further questions uh, necessary. So. <laughs> I'm here till Tuesday. Try thank to deal. Yeah, all right. Let's, uh, let's express our appreciation to uh, Rabbi David. Thanks.